Hello, friends. I am Laurel McCarg, host of Alligator Preserves, and I have another fascinating guest with me today. All my guests are fascinating. I am going to introduce you today to the author of Paradise Undone, a novel of Jonestown with author Annie Doward. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Annie, welcome. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. I am glad you're here, too. Boy, when I read this book... It really shocked and surprised me in many ways. Um, before we get into it, though, I want you to tell our audience a little bit about you. Who is Annie Doward? I um, have, that's my sixth book. And um, so I've been writing for a very long time. Um, I was a full-time professor of English and now I teach part-time online for University College, University of Denver in the Creative Writing Master's Program. Other than the work part, I make rugs and I play tennis and I play Scrabble and I play the spelling bee religiously every day from the New York Times. I do, I do too. I have a whole lineup <laughs> of what I do. I love Scrabble. I do the Wordle. I do the Spelling Bee. I do Connections, yes. which usually yeah. drives me crazy. I do, yeah. I I do all the. I don't do Sudoku. I, I Sudoku. Me neither. Yeah. 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 But, you know, we're we're authors. Mm-hmm. We're not mathematicians. I guess. <laughs> right. Right. Well, you mentioned in a previous interview that this is. The first book that has nothing to do with me, I think, is what you said. Yeah. I would have to disagree. I would have to say that this book has a lot to do with you. Now, you mentioned that you were 18 when the whole Jonestown massacre happened, which is back in November of 78. 78. So what do you mean this has nothing to do with you? Tell me about your fascination with Jonestown, because this has taken up a great deal of your life, I believe. Right. Well, I guess when I said that, I meant that most of my other work has a high degree of autobiography in it. And this book really doesn't, you know, I mean, I feel like you can't look in the book and say, oh, that's Annie. (laughs) Where? You couldn't, lots of my short stories, you know, I'm in there and under some other name. But um, yes, of course, it has to do with me. And when I was in high school in New York, I had this great friend and she was smart and funny and creative and very terrific in every single way. And nobody you would think of as a follower. And she ended up in a cult for... 20 plus years with her sister. Her parents tried to get her out of it. It was a cult in um, New Mexico. And 
She changed her name. She refused to acknowledge anybody from her previous life, including me. And eventually she died in a kind of fuzzy uh, moment from cancer, supposedly. Like her death was under um, questionable circumstances. Mm -hmm. And... As I got older, I met various other people who knew people who were either in cults or had gotten out of cults, and they described their friends to me just the same way. So it became nagging to me. How how can a smart, funny, independent, bright woman get involved in a cult? So that sent me toward cult research. And then the um occurrence of that family, the family with the two sisters in the cult, became a big part of my story, which I, a big story of mine, when I, I by which I mean very long, um, uh, was a story that had to do with 9-11. And this family was just part of this 9-11 story, because they're New Yorkers, you know, mm -hmm. and it was a New York right. story. Yeah. And um I read the story at a reading at the University of North Dakota Writers Conference. And in the story, the parents, which is fiction, the, the parents go to a deprogrammer and the deprogrammer tells them, I lost my daughter in Jonestown. And that's in 1982. So that's four years after Jonestown. And he's, you know, he's like, saying, well, you need to know this about me before it, because I couldn't even get my own daughter out of a cult. Mm -hmm. And, um, but that was the only, you know, Jonestown was a totally, by the way, part of my story. But afterwards, a friend came up and he was in tears and he said, I have good friends who have family who died in Jonestown. And his response ultimately triggered me to write my next book, which I was going to write about these hippie communes in the Huerfano Valley in Colorado, where I have spent time and have friends. And I was going to write that book during my sabbatical, my second sabbatical from Lewis and Clark College. And I was in the bookstore in Powell's doing research under communes, communes, communes. And then I moved down the aisle and I got to cults and there were all these books about Jonestown. And then I had what I call my bookstore aisle epiphany. And I said, remembering my friend crying, thinking about his friends. And I thought I have to write about Jonestown now. Now's the time because the hippie ruins book can wait till another time. I didn't feel like there was anything urgent, but it felt urgent to me in 2004 to write about cults. So that's how it came to be. All right. It, it is a fascination for many people. Uh, I'm always really yes. interested in the decisions that authors make. So in Paradise Undone, a novel of Jonestown, there were over 900 victims, right? Close to 1,000 victims. Well, it's actually closer to 900. Than closer to 900. Okay, 900. Yeah. To, yeah. Oh, 918, oh, yes. Okay. 
why did you make the decision to choose the four main characters that you chose? Uh-huh. Now you you chose two that were nonfiction characters, Mother Marceline, right? The the wife uh-huh. of Jim Jones, uh, the ambassador, uh-huh. um, Virgil Nascimento. Those are the two nonfiction yeah. ones. And then right. kind of a conglomerate of two other characters, Truth, right. the young gal who was in San Francisco, and, and uh-huh. Watts, who was just a wonderful character. How did you come to that decision to pick these four people? Uh-huh. Well, when I started doing my research in 2004, there was nothing written about Marceline Jones, Jim Jones's wife. And she was there from the very beginning till the very last day. And she was a huge part of the church. She wasn't incidental in any way. And so, and also her work as a nurse helped financially in the early days to keep the People's Temple going. And I was angry that I couldn't find any material on her. Everything was about Jim Jones. And so my feeling still now is that Jim Jones takes all the air out of the room all the time. Everybody says Jonestown Massacre, and they talk about Jim Jones, the monomaniac, the charismatic leader, etc. But Doing all that research made me say, I am not writing a book about Jim Jones. I don't want Jim Jones to take up any air in my book or no more than absolutely necessary. So Marceline Jones clearly needed a voice. So I wrote Mm -hmm. about her, the Guinea's ambassador to the United States. And also she was dead, so I could use her name. (laughs) Um. The Guyanese ambassador, also dead, but I changed his name. Um, and I wanted a Guyanese voice in the book about Jonestown because it happened in Guyana. And for many years, if you said the word Guyana, people would say, oh, that's where all those crazy people kill themselves. And it really yeah. kind of ruined this young, newly independent country for a long time. And then I wanted some more representative members of the temple. So uh, Watts is an African-American young man who comes to the temple kind of through family. And there were huge family networks in the temple. Mm -hmm. And um, he gets clean through one of their programs to help people get clean, which is one of the good, great things that they did. And he stays with them and he escapes on the final day on the mass, the day of the massacre while the massacre is happening. Um, Truth, I wanted to have a white follower and uh, she's a kind of true believer in that. If you think about cult followers in the stereotype of worshiping the leader, I think she would fit that. For most of her life, I think she ends up changing a little bit as she gets older and becomes a parent. But um, so I I put the two conglomerate figures out of a lot of reading I did. There are a lot of um, memoirs by survivors that you can read. And so there's a memoir by a guy who escaped on the last day. And um, that had a lot of influence. 
So that's oh. how I came up with those four. Two black, two white, two men, two women. And I've got to tell you, the interview that you start with and that uh, goes throughout the book with Kenyatta, who is a young mm -hmm. journalist interviewing right. Watts, it felt like you just downloaded an actual transcript. <laughs> That's so funny because yesterday I had my my American book launch at the Westcliff Colorado Library and one of my questions was like I thought this was real why isn't there a bibliography in the back and um I made that up you know that <laughs> that is a that is a why. that's a credit to your writing because again yeah. the voices were very real and yeah. oh the yeah. Uh, Watts trying to get a little cozy with Kenyatta occasionally, right. which is just kind of fun. And it was, it was beautiful. I'm going to read something that Watts says. He talks about Animal Farm, the book Animal Farm. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you haven't read it out there, listeners, you should read it. He says, Jonestown, and again, he, you, you, you're having him say this, Jonestown was a lot more like Animal Farm than 1984, the novel 1984. It was a farm, you know, a kind of jungle plantation for poor Black people. Can you guess who were the pigs? So <laughs> in this 900 plus following, there are about roughly 300 minors, 300 elderly, 300 mm -hmm. adults, and the adults mainly female, mainly mm -hmm. African-American. Mm -hmm. Were these just easy targets? Now, I know, I mean, Jonestown started as the idea of having a utopia, right? And and as you mentioned, he he they do good things. They get people clean. Mm. They have doctors and dentists and they take care of these people who have never had this kind of right. care before. They clear this place. They have, they're, they're growing food. They're, they're a community. Right. They're mm. loving. <laughs> do you, do you think he right. picked these people because they were easy targets? Right. You know how? Well, that's a great question. And the People's Temple started as a church in Indiana, which uh, in the 50s, and Indiana was the heart of the Ku Klux Klan, which a lot of people don't know, uh, for a long time. It wasn't the South. That was the Midwest. And Jones had a, a vision of a church where all would be equal. And he started integrating his congregations. He had a church called Wings of Faith. And they kept getting bigger because more people, more Black people and white people were coming because they wanted to worship together. And so he was getting all these threats and decided eventually that they couldn't stay in Indiana. And so they migrated to Northern California and he encouraged his followers to come with him. So 
So they left the city of Indianapolis with all these, you know, poor and working class black and white families. You know, again, it was all these family units and and they followed him to California. So he had that base. Uh, Also, Jones's preaching was kind of in the Pentecostal model and he would go to black churches to watch black preachers and the successful ones and then you know steal their what what seemed to be successful and um he modeled himself on a black preacher named Father Divine who is not so well known but at the time he was uh, he was married to a white woman. He had an integrated following, and he also had a kind of utopian vision. So Jones kind of went to study at his feet, again, to sort of steal all of his ideas. And um, so he'd already kind of established that as his base. And then when they ended up in San Francisco and um, LA, he really wanted to have an inner city church. So perhaps their part of it was these 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 followers were easy marks, but I don't think it started off that way. I believe he started in an altruistic and you know Christian in the terms of helping the poor and the weak and the prisoners. Uh so that's where it started. And his his genre of preaching did appeal to African-American churchgoers also because that's who he modeled his preaching on. Yeah. Yeah. You, in between each of the major sections in your book, uh, you have, I believe, quotes. Yes. From... from- Jim Jones and are these actual quotes? Yeah, all the all the Jim Jones quotes are verbatim. It says that somewhere in the book that I've taken right. them verbatim. All right, this one. Why are there hungry children if there is a god? What's your god ever done? Two out of three babies in the world are hungry. He never heard your prayers. He never gave you food. He never gave you a bed. He never gave you a home. The only happiness you ever found was with me. Whoa. So he actually, he he turns people away from God, whoever you, whoever you think is a traditional God, right? Mm-hmm. And, and becomes expects people to treat him as God. And yeah. Right. And there were problems with that. Yeah. The epigraph to the whole book is if you want to call me God, then I'm God. Um, He, he uses, I mean, Jim Jones was very clever and he uses whatever will work and he has all different kinds of audiences. He has the poor black and white people. He has the professionals who are the would-be utopians who are very sad that the 60s didn't turn the world into a better place. But it's still possible to do that through uh, 
integration, through helping the poor and the sick. Uh, and he's adept at figuring out what his audience wants to hear. And then he caters to that. So he can do all the God talk for, you know, a lot of those believers, they're very serious Christians. And, you know, I think that quote that you read was a quote that happens in Jonestown, which Mm -hmm. is, is in fact the case where he has made this environment and as as Watts says, you know, for some people, you know, especially poor black elderly people like his grandma, but though his grandma died before Jonestown, but he says she would have come in a in a New York minute because mm-hmm. in Jonestown their their necessaries were provided, it was safe, it was beautiful, they didn't have to worry about being hungry or having money to go to the doctor. And so you have to remember that those things are also true besides all of the horrors that are true about Jonestown. Right. And so your character, mother, Marceline, and the fact that she turns the other cheek and looks away, she knows that Jones is sleeping with everyone everybody (laughs) yeah and she says no one gets to have everything i have i have goosebumps now when i read the sections of mother marceline i felt so conflicted because Uh i could feel her angst i could feel her wanting to do the right thing trying to do the right thing but recognizing that she wasn't strong enough to do it right oh it just it hurt i mean seriously like i'm reading this thinking oh please do something say something Uh stop stop what you know is going to happen do we know when jones started taking drugs that well, he's while he was still in the states, he started taking speed because he wanted to accomplish more things, yeah, and he felt yeah. like sleep was a waste of time. And so, it wasn't, you know, it was sort of a good motive to take speed. But eventually, of course, he became addicted, and then he tried all other kinds of drugs too. So um, she was also aiding and abetting that as a nurse, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you have to remember she meets, I have their meeting in the book in 1949. So think about when that is taking place in terms of women's rights. Yeah. Um, she's the daughter of a minister and she marries a minister. And this follow your man thing is pretty deeply ingrained in her. So for her to have left Jim Jones due to his cheating, you know, and he also had children with other women and she knew all about it. Everybody knew all about it. And in some ways, the congregation thought she was a saint because of it. And so in a weird way, it sort of built her 
her image in the church because they saw her as saintly. Sacrificing. She was Mother Marceline. And he was, he was dad. I mean, people called him dad. And um, so it didn't hurt her in that community that she accepted his cheating. It made her more godly in a certain way. Um, she she wanted to leave Jones at a certain point, And he told her, if you ever leave me, I'm going to get all the kids. So they had like five or six adopted kids and one natural child. And he said, I'll get the lawyers and you won't get to ever see your kids again. And she believed him because he was a very powerful guy. And he had lawyers who loved him and worshipped him. So, so yeah, she couldn't, she couldn't take that step. She's human and fallible and we're all rooting for her to leave or at the very end to knock over the poison and she can't do it because she doesn't have it in her to do it. But I also want to take this moment to say that there are men with guns who are standing around the vat of poison who are listening to Jim Jones say, you know, you make sure that kid, that family that they drink it. And so you have men with guns standing there and those men with guns have just killed a congressman and four and three reporters out at the airstrip. You know, I think you'd really have to be superhuman to go out there and not try it. I mean, you could have, people could have tried to do it and been stopped from doing it that we don't know about. Right. I mean, they clearly were not all volunteers in the right. strength, the flavor aid right. rank. Yeah. Which was not right. Kool-Aid, as you point out, it was yeah. flavor aid. I wonder what happened to Kool-Aid stock after that. <laughs> well, Kool-Aid's still with us, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. Right? I guess flavor aid probably is not. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. And of course, she met him when she and he were very young and right. and idealistic and yes. you know taking that little black baby and she seeing in him that he didn't see color and again very unusual in that time mm-hmm. so she saw all the good in him mm-hmm. and all the good that that mm-hmm. he could potentially do and then, right. you know, like like many things, right? Like frogs in a pot that's being heated. Yes. You know, things happen slowly over time. Right. And sometimes you just don't see the signs. Right. I mean, yeah. they had the soup kitchens. They had their programs to detox people yeah. that were doing good work in the world. And that was for her, you know, and her version of Christianity. That's what you're supposed to do. So um, it's uh, it's hard to say, oh, when is the moment where it where he turned into a monster? There wasn't one moment. There was uh, this slow decline into drug addiction and monomania. And I believe and this is true for every cult leader is that they start off and people can talk to them. But they get more and more power because people give them the power 
they want him to be in charge. So he takes charge. And then, you know, early on, he would listen to other voices, but then he stopped and he couldn't take any criticism. And if there were critics, he punished them, excuse me, in different ways. And one part that I don't have in the book is in 1973, there was the Gang of Eight uh, who... um, who left the church and he saw that as this great defection. They were young. There are four black and four white kids who he sent off to junior college, you know, as part of his helping the poor thing. But guess what? They started to develop critical thinking and didn't want to be part of his organization anymore. So he demonized them. And this is another culty thing is where you say everybody who's on the outside is the enemy. And so um, that was in 73. I mean, I'd say that was an early marker of what he was turning into. I mean, he didn't have them killed. Okay. Mm. But uh he he really demonized them and that they all had family members back in the church and he told them you can't communicate with them they're traitors that's the word mm-hmm. traitors so um and the paranoia he, yeah the paranoia started early and uh again it's a very typical cult behavior is you're not allowed to communicate with anybody outside and everybody outside is the enemy and and you talk about the practice sessions of mm-hmm. drinking the poison. He had mm-hmm. practice sessions. <laughs> I, I right. So they were testing people. Okay, folks, this may or may not be poison. Are you going to drink it? Are you with me? And so they did that multiple times, in fact, when there was no poison. And everybody got through it. And then they could celebrate how faithful they were to People's Temple and to Jim Jones. So so those were tests. Those were tests of their loyalty. Loyalty. To him. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, um, in the news recently, there was uh, a story about the uh, Kenyan cult leader who ordered yes. his followers to starve themselves. Yes. Out of 429 victims, 191 were children, and they yes. were murdered. Yes. And I read recently about the, what was it, the Shakahola Forest incident? Yeah, that's, May. That, that's that story, 2023. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is after Jonestown. Uh, recently... There's a new documentary out called Wild Wild Country. Have you watched that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just started watching that. And again, a, an Indian guru wants to create this utopian city in mm-hmm. Oregon, mm-hmm. in the desert of Oregon. And his followers are intelligent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, follow him from India all the way to Oregon and and he brings tremendous amount of people there. I haven't watched the ending yet. And okay. I and I don't believe there's a mass suicide, but they no. I believe tried to do something to affect 
politics, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's a great mm-hmm. a poisoning of other people outside of the cult. So mm-hmm. again, recently I spoke with some young people about my talk with you and that I was talking mm-hmm. about, I was going to talk about Jonestown mm-hmm. and they had never heard of Jonestown. They didn't right. know what I was talking about. Yes. So how, uh, how can we educate our young people, people in general? How, yeah. Can we, I mean, in, in this environment where we have so much access to social media, right. how can we warn people of the signs and, and would right. it even do any good? Are there, I mean, are there some people who just are going to want to believe that they can live in a utopia with one leader? Right. Well, there's been recently a lot of attention paid to various cults, including uh, Netflix series. Uh, you know, there's that one that you're pointing out about um, the Indian Unlocked country. Yeah. And then also there was Nixium, the, the business cult where all these women ended up selling themselves for this guy. And there is another cult from um, this liberal arts university in New York that they just made a, a, a Netflix series. And there's a, a, a memoir from a survivor that I read. And so they're getting a lot of um, airtime now so you can see how damaging these cults are. So that's one way I think that people are getting an education about the damages wrought by cult leaders. Um, So I wrote a novel at the time, there were no novels by American writers about Jonestown. Now there's a few, Um, but I feel like fiction I don't want to use it as a tool or as propaganda, but I feel like a lot of times people will read fiction and they might not be the people who'd read a book about about cult damages, you know, mm-hmm. and there are jillions of those books. Yeah. I, have, I have many of them. <laughs> have you in all your research in the writing of this book and all the other books you've read on cults, have you come up with an answer to why (laughs) intelligent people will join a cult? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And I guess the short answer is no, I don't have (laughs) the answer. There isn't one answer. I think people want to be taken care of. And there's a lot of people in our culture who are not taken care of by, let's say, the normal institutions of family and school and government, where they might once have felt um, anchored in the world. And there's a lot of people who feel unanchored, and they're kind of looking for anything. What is it to give them a port in a storm? And That's one thing all these cults have in common, including in politics right now. Like, you belong with us. We'll take Mm -hmm. care of you, even if it's completely not true. Mm -hmm. And um, so so there are a lot of people who are good people who are desperate. And 
um, very smart people who put aside their critical facilities and critical thinking because the other need is greater, you know. But then, like with the Gang of Eight, when they've developed their critical facilities, critical thinking to such a point that they understand that they do not need what the cult leader is offering, then they say, all right, I'm done with this. And so one of those people who was in the Gang of Eight, who left and left all these family members behind, he he's a dentist, and he uh, joined or organized the Concerned Relatives who went to Congressman Ryan saying, we're really concerned about our family members in Jonestown. Can you do something about it? And um, so, uh, you know, he, he, he saw it early and young and got out, but his family members, you know, like aunts and grandparents and big network of family members, they didn't, and they didn't believe him. And, and they died. They all died. Yeah. yeah. Something just struck me as you were speaking when we were talking about culture. Does the word cult come from culture? <laughs> oh, that's a very good question. And I'm sure they have the same root. I don't know that, though. Oh, I'm going to have to look have that we? up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Annie Doward, author of Paradise Undone, a novel of Jonestown. It, this is an absolutely fascinating read. Thank absolutely you. fascinating. I got into each of the characters uh, as I was reading it and struggling with them all. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know, to think about? Um, I just think, I think I'll add for the the writers out there is that I tried to get this book published for 16 years. I had over 300 rejections oh. and kind of through happenstance, I came in contact with this British brand new publisher and told her about my book. And she said, oh, I want to read it. And then in a month, she said, I want to publish it. So this is the don't give up message. Don't give Well, that's, that is a great message. And do you want to, Give any shout outs to anyone in particular? So Inkspot Publishing is my publisher. They've only published a few books so far, but they have more in the pipeline. And I guess I'll just say that, um, you know, independent publishers are, are saving those of us who have never been able to break into the, you know, the top five New York multi-figure publishing deal so honor your independent publishers and your independent bookstores and and any bookstore can order my book so i would suggest go that route if you want to you can also order it online from you know all of the different uh, online booksellers all the different online booksellers and you have a website I have a website, which is AnnieDawood.com, and I try to keep 
keep up with everything that's happening. So I'm also on um, As It Happens, only now in my 60s, am I on social media because I wanted to get this book out in the world because <laughs> I had to work so hard to get it in the world. Um, I'm on Instagram, Annie Dawood Novel, and and some of the other things. That's my that's my title, Annie Dawood Novel. All right. You will send me some photos and I will have links and photos with show notes on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. And Annie, uh, stay independent. Don't, uh, don't, <laughs> don't follow anyone but your own heart. <laughs> yes, you too. And, uh, and all of yeah. you out there. Yeah. Yeah. Spread the word, spread the word. I mean, young people today, young people probably always have been easily manipulated uh-huh. yes and and so watch for signs I, I guess maybe i should ask are there signs are there signs people should look for if they're concerned well about- a lot of the cults go after college students particularly right after they've graduated when they don't know what to do next and so and also like first year college students who who maybe are away from home for the first time and they feel yet feel at sea, which is my character truth. She, and she drops out of college. So, so you, you need to be aware. One of the things that they all do is after you, they get you to come to dinner or whatever is they do what's called love bombing. And, and so you have a, 10 people and they're all saying, Oh, you're so great. You're wonderful. Oh, we're so happy you came. And all this positive, you know, it's like a script. And, you know, that's hard to turn down if you're lonely and sad and away from friends and family. So, yeah, be on your guard, everyone. Thank you, Annie. And I look forward to anything else you might write. Are you working on something new? Um, I I have one other book that is actually it's at my publisher. She's reading it to decide whether she wants to publish it or not. And it's more historical fiction um, that has to do with, you know, injustice. Okay. That's all I'll say for now. All righty. But thank Annie. you for this opportunity. I'm very grateful. Well, thank you for visiting with us. And thank you, listeners. Follow Annie Dawood. Get her book, books, several books, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Okay, that's wonderful. Thanks, Laurel. You're welcome. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com. <laughs>